You know, I'm not sure if this really qualifies. Do you think this qualifies as a threat of the week? Oh my gosh, the space station's going to explode, and Jordy and Picard will die. What do you think? Does it qualify? Because I do. God dang it, this is getting old. <sighs> Naren Shankar wrote this episode. The gentleman, who at this point was a major staff writer, and according to him, he had multiple and repeated issues with the concept of this episode. And it does show... Oh, don't mistake me. This isn't Lamentation Realm. This is more like, huh? The episode. It feels like there should be one or even two major things to discuss and bring up in this episode. And it does neither. I've actually seen a few other people's takes on this episode as well. And one thing that just about all of us tend to agree on is this episode seems like it's trying to hit hard-hitting issues and isn't. It's simply too simplistic, and so it doesn't even really properly bring up the issues that it might otherwise be discussing. But I, I digress. So, <sighs> poker. The, the episode begins with poker. Why? Because the episode ran short. I've actually mentioned this already. Poker is usually used as filler, as something to pad the runtime. It's probably sad to mention that I think the poker scene is one of the better scenes in this episode. I mean, it's not great. It's just, you know, it's just the characters riffing and chatting with each other. Anyways. Throughout this episode, Jordy's actually pretty cool. And I want to stress that point. Because he's the main contact point for Miss I didn't write down her name and don't care. You know, the scientist lady. So I have a question before we go into anything else. Do you think that she is... How do I phrase this? That she's got a point, basically. Because on the one hand, sometimes people need to try new things. I myself am very anti-traditionalist. You know, I, I just because we have done something is not a sufficient reason for us to do something. Now, if we did something for a reason, then that reason is good enough reason to do it. But for me, just because we did it doesn't mean we should, right? That's my general mentality. So I get the idea, and this has been proven historically, that sometimes you need to push the boundaries for things to progress, for new technology, new innovation, etc. And innovation, if we're being honest, usually fails. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we have the terminology, in a, or at least I use the terminology, of innovator and then codifier. This one comes up with the idea, this one makes it work. Now, <laughs> that's a, a simplistic take on it, but the point being, it's entirely possible that scientists, oh, I'm trying to think of the most polite terminology for her, let's call her scientist rude face. Scientist rude face, it's debatable whether or not she is someone who is an innovator, was pushing the boundaries of what can be done, or, or, if she has the blinders on, if she is tunnel visioning on her thing, on her fixation, her obsession, to the point where she is wrong, basically. And of course, it could be both. These are not mutually exclusive. Which do you think it is? I'm actually quite curious. Anyways, so rude face. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And Jordy is quite polite to her, and it, it forms a good contrast. Because Jordy is consistently nice, helpful, and cooperative with her, and she is consistently not with basically everyone else. The one exception is she is moderately positive towards Data in, like, two scenes. 
I was actually sitting down. I wrote down my notes here. I was trying to put into thought, put into word, why it is she's so irritating. And I never actually came up with a good answer for that. I think it's mostly because of the terminology that I just affixed to her. Rude face. Because she's rude. I don't like rude. You could see her point in several instances, but that doesn't excuse her being a dick, you know? Anyways, <clears throat> and then the teaser finally ends at 6 minutes and 44 seconds. That is insane. <laughs> it's not the longest teaser, actually. The longest teaser is like 15 minutes over in Discovery. But before that, the longest teasers were in the 7-minute range. Just think about that for a second. This isn't quite the longest teaser, but only by a matter of 15 seconds. Or 16 seconds, excuse me. That's... <clears throat> so... They mentioned the idea of the replicator multi-tool. Can I just say, why have we never seen this since? Now, we know why, because it would be a special effect that would be a nightmare to use, unless you used it very carefully and with precise camera work. But the idea of a replicator multi-tool is amazing, and I cannot believe we've never seen this before. Think about this for a second. We in real life have multi-tools. We have insane multi-tools. I have actually seen a multi-tool that would fit in my palm that is like eight or nine different tools in once. And I don't mean like in, in, in those stupid adverts overnight. I mean, I've actually had friends who work in the IT industry who use these things on a regular basis. Actual functional multi-tools. What the hell are you doing, Federation? Why are you carrying around a giant suitcase when you have replicators that can make and demake and you even have micro-replicators, which is actually directly name-dropped in this episode. That is a brilliant idea. Maybe I need to patent this. Anyways. <clears throat> so, um, let's see. Jordy's helpful. Yes, yes. Um, I've mentioned many times how much I enjoy continuity, and I want to give you an example of this. There's a small bit where Worf is talking about the Batleth lessons that he has been giving to Dr. Crusher. And they're both in the same white outfit that's been in the show for some time. That is good continuity. I like that. I know what you're thinking. Well, what's that have to do with anything? Worf's little martial training exercises in the background have been a regular element of the show for years at this point. And so showing that he is still doing those lessons and still training those people, in basically in his spare time, it's just nice background continuity. It's a good way to keep the show going, to, sh to show that the same people are doing the same thing with the same events day by day. It, it adds that continuity. There's no other word for it. It adds the continuity to the undercurrent, which is a nice touch. I just wanted to comment on that really quick. So at the 20-minute mark, they start talking about the life argument. This is when Data goes to Crusher and asks her to define life. I decided to look up the life definition myself. Do you know there's 20 definitions for life in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary? I like definition number two, which I wrote down here. A principle of force that is considered to under... I don't know what that word is. Oh, Jesus Christ, I'm going to look that up again. I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Just look it up live. We'll do it live. Screw it. All right, here we go. What does that word? Underlie. Yeah, I could not read my head. So, anyways, let's, read, let's try this again. A principle of force that is considered to underlie the distinctive quality of animate beings. There you go. So, by that definition, a crystal or 
For example, fire would not qualify, since those are not beings that are animate. And it's also noteworthy that it mentions that it is a presumption, not an absolute fact, which I also find interesting. Now, of course, we could and have and will argue what the heck life is for a very long time. But I find it interesting that the episode spends so much time focusing on life. But let, I'll, I'll circle back around to that. Now, let's see. So the, the, the device goes in to handle the fake threat, and it's like, huh, okay. And it just kind of stays in there. Now, they all assume that this means it failed the test. So Data decides to, to go for scientific rigor and do like 30 more tests. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Now, what I find interesting is they have decided that this test will, in an absolute sense, prove that these things have a survival instinct. I'd like to go ahead and professionally, professionally disagree with that. Because a tool that is designed to be a problem, a very sophisticated problem-solving tool, seeing that there is an explosion, this is in the actual real explosion, and deciding to vacate the premises does not mean it has a survival instinct. It means that it... I mean, how many times in your life, if you happen to do any kind of troubleshooting, have you basically let something break so that you can then be unaffected by the break and then go in and fix it? That's that's a thing that has happened many times in my IT career, but also I have seen people do this with basic engineering problems as well. If you were to try and fix the problem, which you basically can't, then you would just get damaged and nothing would happen. Instead, you get the hell out because you can't fix the problem while it's breaking. You wait for it to break, and then you cut off the water, or you cut off the power, or whatever, and then you go in and fix the problem now that you can. Because now you just have to replace the damaged parts. That is actually fairly basic problem solving. And not anything to do with survival instinct. You could argue that one way or the other, but I make this point because it's kind of one of the biggest problems I have with the episode. I'd say the second biggest problem. That they seem to insist that survival instinct is the only thing necessary to prove absolutely and definitively that these things are, in fact, alive. Let's see here. So I'm looking at my notes here. Um, there, I'm actually astonished. There's this bit where Picard calls out to Riker and has a distorted message. Too often, fiction, including Trek, will have a distorted message, which is perfectly audible. And the other person will say, what? I didn't catch that. I'm just amazed they actually caught it just this one time. So credit, Mr. Shankar. <laughs> uh, let's see here. So, um, moving forward here. Uh, yeah, Riker is the one who has to come up with the brilliant idea to actually ask the exocomps if they want to go in or not. Funny thing, they were actually supposed to be metacomps, uh, as in metamorphic computers was actually the original term. But unfortunately, there was a real-life company named Metacomp, and you know how lawyers are. They're the scum of the earth and must all die. Sorry, what I meant to say is that lawyers are awesome. Please don't sue me. Now, <clears throat> I don't have much else to say about the episode proper, although, as usual, I do have to complain about the threat of the week. Okay, now that we've gotten the complaint out of the way, let's talk about the episode. Mr. Shankar himself mentioned that he was trying pretty hard to not turn this into an abortion issue. 
Unfortunately, he, by his own admission, kind of failed as his own sensibilities kind of drifted in. And he, as he mentioned, sometimes the episode succeeded on this point and sometimes it didn't. And no, no, what I mean by that is he wanted to show both sides of the argument equally, and he feels like he kind of failed at that and kind of succeeded. And I do agree, and that kind of self-reflection is a good thing. I mean, no real judgment here. I'm not trying to lay, lay stones at the man or whatever. That's how you do that, right? You lay a stone on someone. God, sorry, I'm a little distracted because... The neighbors. Anyways, I'm trying to talk over it. Because I have a deadline, too. So, <clears throat> he mentioned the idea that, you know, he, he's very pro-life. And that and that's kind of, kind of inferred into the episode. And quite a few people who have analyzed this episode since, including the three I looked at, all mentioned the abortion allegory here. Because one of the key points they keep coming up with is the exact point at which something can be determined to be alive. Data mentions that with regards to when did he go from being a bunch of parts to being an android who was alive. Um, Crusher mentions that with Wesley. You know, he asked the same question. And, of course, the idea of these things developing. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this bluntly. I don't think this is an abortion issue. Yes, I'm disagreeing with the other people, despite the fact that this probably did drift into the writer's thoughts. I don't think that has anything to do with anything, really. But that's because I don't think this is a life issue. And that is my biggest problem with the episode. They keep talking about whether or not these things are alive. But the fact, in my opinion, the life argument is invalid. As in, this is, this is the incorrect question, the incorrect dilemma to be debated here. And this is actually demonstrated by the episode proper. There's this point where where uh, Miss Rudeface says, you know, a tool is very different, uh, you know, a tricorder is very different from Mr. Data. Mr. Data's rejoinder to that is, you are very different from a virus, but both are alive. That is an amazingly flawed argument. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in real life, sure, but especially in Star Trek, we kind of destroy viruses as often as possible at will. They are functionally the enemy. There's no protected rights for viruses. There's no preservation considerations for viruses. Oh, and by the way, while we're on the subject, actually viruses are debated as to whether or not they qualify as alive or not. That's something that I've seen multiple papers being done on, so let's not let's ignore that. But even if we assume they are alive, that doesn't matter. A pig is alive too, but a lot of people like bacon. And I'm not trying to be mean by this. I'm just trying to point out that the whether it's alive or not is not really the point. Uh, I could use ants as an example. Cockroaches. It doesn't matter. You get my point? Plants are alive. People still eat those. No. The point here is whether or not they are sentient and sapient. Now, I'm going to use those two terms in deliberately and in one cohesive thing. Real quick, some people have wondered why I use that terminology. Once upon a time, this is a while ago, I incorrectly utilized one of them. I don't remember which. And I was actually referring to the other. And that was my mistake. And I realized that that's because what I usually define as, let's just call it a free-willed, intelligent individual, contains both sentience and sapience. And that's the best definition I have. So I made a point back then, this is like four years ago now, I think. I made a point back then to always refer to it as sentience and sapience, henceforward, to describe what I call an intelligent, free-willed individual, like myself or you or whatever, right? 
Now, there's probably some grays there, but I don't want to get into that because that's getting way off into the weeds and has nothing to do with this episode. Or does it? Because, again, sentience and sapience is the point, to which I would bring up droid effect. Droid effect has to be probably my most used lorium, even more than cloud effect, which is a common Star Trek thing, because droid effect is in so much of fiction. Probably because it's in real life, too. Droid effect actually applies to human beings. No, I'm serious. Droid effect is something of sufficient intelligence with sufficient experience and sufficient external stimuli, which I know these two could be seen to be the same, but whatever, in order to then develop into a fully sentient and sapient being. And that's humans. A newborn baby takes time, but has the sufficient intellect, the sufficient experience as it grows up, and sufficient external stimuli, this is specifically through other beings, uh, other people, parents or whatever, in order to develop into another person. Make sense? That is droid effect in a nutshell. I named it after Star Wars, but the idea comes from real life. And I think that's why it's so common in fiction. Which brings us back to this. Was Data sentient and sapient at birth? That's a good question. I would argue no, but I admit I have no real evidence of that. Even lore, however, there are some inferences that he wasn't fully developed at first, that it took time, and as he developed, he developed badly, which led to the, you know, the whole colony's crystal identity shutdown problem. Now, this brings us to the exocomps. Are they sentient and sapient? Now, that is an extremely good question. You want to know my answer to that question? cannot solve. This goes back to my point earlier. They try to do a rigorous scientific study by ha detesting whether or not they have a survival instinct. As I think I've, tr as I've probably failed at proving, in my opinion that is an invalid study, an inconclusive study to be more clear. It is in short a bit of evidence leaning in a direction, but it is not concrete. It does not prove something as true. If you take away two apples and are left with an apple, you can now prove the mathematical formula there. But if you... Okay, I don't have a good analogy to follow through on this. You know, it's, it's the 3 plus x equals y thing all over again. You do not have sufficient variables to prove. All you can do is conjecture. Now that's fine, and it's a good basis, and it could bring up some fascinating topics and arguments. But none of that is done because the whole focus of the episode is on whether or not they are alive, which doesn't matter. And, if I could be so bold, I don't think the episode ever proves if they're sentient or sapient. Oh, I know what you're going to point out. Well, they mention the thing at the end, and they come up with the new solution, and then one of them has to stay behind. Yeah, they're problem solvers. They know that station inside and out, this is mentioned more than once. They know how to fix it, and they know what's required to get the others out. That's just math. That is not sentience and sapience. Now, they might be, and certainly the episode wants to make it seem like they are alive, but again, alive and sentient and sapient are also not the same thing. See my cockroach or virus reference earlier. You get my point? There's some awesome possibilities here, in my opinion. I, I happen to love the sentient sapient debate thing. I like Measure of a Man. I like a lot of what they do with the Doctor over on Voyager. And I bring up both of those on purpose because I know people in real life who are fans of Star Trek who think that Data and the Doctor are not sentient and sapient. Now, I say that with that tone because I find that to be ludicrous, but there are people who still think that. There's still room for debate. Because, well, sentience and sapience isn't a proven variable. 
It's not three apples. It's this nebulous concept that I have to use this whole terminology of SNS. Actually, I wrote that down in my notes. I just put SNS nowadays. Um, in order to try and get across a vague idea of what I'm intending. Most of you probably know what I mean when I say that, but can you define it? And thus we have the fascinating concept of the episode. Uh, can we begin to communicate with these things? Can we interact with them? Now I know what you're thinking, Lore, we've done this before. We, we've done the whole is the, is the new life form thing. We, we, in fact, we did that with uh, the, the silicon crystal things all the way back and I guess that was season one or two. I, I actually don't remember. It's kind of an unmemorable episode. You know, ugly sex and mostly water, that one. We did that with Wesley's nanomachines. Uh, that would have been at the beginning of season three, I want to say. And I feel like we've done that as well prior to this, and I know we'll do this after this. So why rehash the same story? Well, that's a good point. So why not make this story about data? One of the ideas I've heard shopped around, and I love this idea, is turn this episode into a trial. Now, this would, of course, remove the threat of the week, which is awesome, and it would shift the stakes from being, well, someone died, to Data's career. Now, I know what you're thinking. We've already done a trial with Data. No, 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 no. This is about Data. This is a character episode about Data, but the trial is him having to prove that what he did was in the interests of what he believed were a sentient and sapient species, that he would received what he believed to be an illegal order. The military, a good military, cannot be ordered to sacrifice civilians. That's, that's an illegal order. And that especially is true for something like Starfleet. Like you can't just say, I'm going to shoot these civvies in order to save these military personnel. It doesn't work that way. If someone was to be, if, if Riker ordered Data to sacrifice himself, that absolutely is a thing that can happen in real life as well as in Starfleet. And that will come up later with Troy in an episode most of you probably remember. But you can't do that with civvies. The rules are different. Ergo, Data would then have, it's basically the events of the episode kind of already happened. We'd probably have some flashbacks here and there. But the idea is that Data is being called to task to prove that what he received was an illegal order. That this court-martial is invalid because he was actually following procedure and protocol correctly. Because he believed he had sufficient evidence to have... What's a good terminology for this? I'm sorry, I keep leaning on this thing and it keeps creaking. I apologize. Um, that he believed he had sufficient reason, I, I don't know what, I, I don't know the proper legal term, I can't think of it right now for some reason, to believe. Just cause? No, that's not right. <sighs> Hang on, this is going to bug me. He believed he had reasonable suspicion. There we go. He believed he had reasonable suspicion that the exocomps were sentient and sapient, and as a consequence would qualify as, you know, independent life that cannot be ordered, as civilian life, like I mentioned earlier, that cannot be ordered to its death. Period, regardless of the circumstances. And thus, he stood on this point. Now, of course, the episode can then play on. We really learned that Data, thankfully, didn't have to make that call, that they were saved in another manner. Maybe even with the Exocomps thing, and that could be part of Data's point. Because of what they did, he could use that as evidence. And they could probably even conclude, maybe, I would have the, if I was doing this, I would probably have the episode not actually conclusively say whether they're sentient or sapient or not. Because, again, that's not quite the point. 
it, bringing up the dilemma is the point. Bringing up the dynamic is the point. But ultimately, examining data himself and how exactly he's responding to these stimuli would be the crux of the episode, the main thrust of the point in the character drama. What do you think? I'm actually quite curious. I don't think it would be a great episode, to be honest. I just think it would be better. Which brings me to my next point. Mass Effect. <laughs> How many of you played Mass Effect? I hear they're going to make the third one sometime soon. In Mass Effect, AI research is illegal because of precedent, basically. Because of the Geth. To summarize, uh, the Geth are an AI that rebelled against their creators, blah, 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 you know how this goes. So galaxy-wide AI research is illegal. Instead, they have what is referred to as VI. And I will freely admit I have adopted these terms into my own lingo because it's a great way to distinguish true AI, which is sentient and sapient, to VI, which is intelligent but limited. And then, of course, you got like just basic computer programming, which is below any of that, right? So you got like gradients of VI, gradients of AI. AI research is illegal, and it makes sense why. Is AI research illegal in the Federation? Now, obviously it's not, because the doctor. But I find this, this is the kind of question I would love to be examined, because, well, let's look at droid effect again really quick. Sufficiently intelligent, sufficiently experienced, regular interactions with external stimuli also known as the Enterprise Computer. Now, I'm not saying that that should be a thing, but you could probably see how that could develop without limitations on it. Wouldn't it be interesting if we find out that those computers which are so advanced are actually VIs, that they are, as in the Mass Effect terminology, limited in their development and their scope and what they can actually process and consume. And thus, the computer doesn't actually qualify as a sentient sapient life form because it isn't because it can't be. This could also lend some additional credence to some of the times when we see actual AI develop, like the Doctor. Now, I made this point many times back in Voyager, but one of the problems with the Doctor's holographic rights issues was that he kept lobbying for the rights of entities that weren't actually sentient and sapient. Now, if I ever get to redo the Void Ruminations, fingers crossed, I want to make the additional point that his point could be that those things have the capacity to become sentient and sapient, whether they are right now or not. In short, to use the direct human parallel, it'd be like lobbying for the rights of newborn children. Make sense? Now, I bring all this up, though, because the doctor and his particular thing was pushed by a brilliant and somewhat unhinged scientist and you already see where I'm going with this. In short, given how restrictive the Federation is about uh, genetic manipulation, thanks to the entire problem with the eugenics wars, it would make sense to me that they are similarly restrictive about AI for the most part, that there are limitations on this. And, and then the occasions we see someone you know, drift into making a more developed intelligence, a more developed VI, and pushing it into true AI, are situations in which that kind of raises a red flag, and it's, and it's unusual, like the Doctor, or like Data. After all, why else would Nudian Sung had to gone off and hide over there? The actual reason we are given, of course, is the fact that you know every, he kept failing, and he was tired of failing. But what if it was instead something more along the lines of he was working on something that shouldn't be, 
I mean, we know Section 31's a thing, although they won't be invented for like a couple of years at this point. Just tossing around some thoughts, basically. In my opinion, the AI illegality thing actually fits Star Trek surprisingly well. It's not true, of course. It's never been brought up, and it, has, it was never intentional by any of the authors. It's just interesting how neatly that slides into Star Trek's overall continuity. And I know what some of you are thinking about Discovery Season 2. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this somewhat unremarkable episode. And I'll see you guys next time.